There is such a thing as a strategic loss. If you're playing chess, there may come a time where you sacrifice your queen, your most powerful tool, if you know that it will put you in position to checkmate your opponent with a rook or a bishop in the next turn. If you're in the NBA, you may sit your best players during a game with a close rival so that your players are stronger and better ready for the playoffs and also so that your opponent doesn't actually know what your team does. If you are running a preaching schedule for a handful of preachers in your church, you may look at the passages and see sexual impurity and apocalyptic language and say, I'll make my volunteer take that one. (laughs) These things happen. With that in mind, please pray for me. (laughs) Lord, we thank you for your word, for all of your word, the parts that make us uncomfortable and the parts that assure us. We ask that today you would draw our hearts into you and that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Amen. In all seriousness, I am very grateful to preach this sermon. I don't feel like Stephen has thrown me to the wolves too much. Um, There's a lot of meat here. So, we're in chapter 4. We've been walking through 1 Thessalonians, and we come to a turning point. If you look at the verses just above the chapter, we see that there's clearly a conclusion to a prayer. And we have to ask ourselves, has Paul been giving his opening prayer of thanksgiving all the way up to this point? Uh, And it seems that that's the case. So for those of you who are familiar with Paul's writings, he likes to open uh, cordially. He lets people know, hey, I'm really grateful for you. These are the ways that I'm praying for you. These are the ways that I have been informed about what's going on so that you know how I have been caring for you. And in 1 Thessalonians, it takes up over half the letter. Paul wants to encourage them. Now, he's going to get to where he's, he, he, he needs to teach them something. He needs to correct something. He's, he's trying to exhort them in some way. But he takes a lot of time with this group, as, as Stephen mentioned before, because the groundwork that he had with them was so small. He didn't get to really invest in them as the relationship was starting. So he is trying to build on this foundation and to really let them know how, mu- how valuable they are to him. He's, he's taking his time with that. He's careful with that. But we're now at a place where he's shifting. And he begins to exhort them with a very familiar framework. It's along the lines of faith, love, and hope. Paul uses this, these three regularly. 
perhaps most prominently, you, can, you may recall that at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great hymn to love, Paul brings up these three as a framework. He says there, you know, if I have faith to move mountains, but I don't have love, I've got nothing. If I prophesy, if I, if I can tell you all of the great things to hope for, but I don't have love, I've got nothing. And yet he concludes that saying that all three abide. All, all these three, knowledge passes away, works pass away, the gifts of tongues pass away, but it is true that faith, hope, and love will abide forever, and yet love is the greatest. Well, he says that to the Corinthians because there seemed to be no genuine love in that group of people. He had to challenge the power-hungry people of Corinth to say, no, don't focus on your gifts. Don't focus on all of these works that you can perform or the glory that you can get under yourselves. Focus on lowering yourself and on receiving the Holy Spirit who commands you to go out and bring people in and serve them well. In Romans chapter 5, he takes another tune. He says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into his grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because afflictions produce perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. See, here he uses faith, hope, and love as a means of talking about how we actually interact with God's work how the work of justification plays out through these three. Well, here we are again, and he brings up faith, hope, and love at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, verses 2 and 3 in chapter 1. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers, we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, each of the three, these abiding gifts of the Holy Spirit, bear fruit. Each of the three are connected with something that the soul responds to, that the people have embodied in some way. And so, it's natural that as we get to the actual exhortation part of this letter, where Paul is going to be uh, giving a command 
or giving a word of, of assurance that he's going to be basing it off of this framework that he introduced at the beginning. Where is your faith? Where is your hope? Where is your love? Now, fast forward, we're back to chapter four. To those of you who have already gotten bored with my introduction and have turned back to the passage, you will probably be saying, Michael, I think you may have actually gotten the wrong verses because faith doesn't appear here. He talks about sex. Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that, Bo. So, what in the world? What, is, is, is there a connection here? How, how in the world does this connect to Paul being concerned with the Corinthians and their faith? Well, the lines are actually much cleaner than you might think. You see, sometimes it, it feels like Paul kind of arbitrarily picks this thing like, you know, we get one commandment. That's, that's commandment number seven, right? Like you're going through the list and seven is a, is a nice two-angle shape, and it's like, don't make a love triangle, no adultery. Got it. That's how you remember commandment number seven. But why would Paul single this one out? Don't we, don't we have these other commandments that are important too? What, what's such a big deal about what we do with our bodies in this way? Well, I'm going to let you guys off the hook for a little bit, and we're just going to talk about the situation in Corinth. I'm uh, sorry, in Thessalonica, the, the victory of the sea. Um, so, in, in, in much of the ancient Roman world, in, in, with the Greeks and their philosophy present, Dionysus would have been this great idol. Uh, and Dionysus represented kind of a, a raw masculinity um, and fertility, um, and is actually, uh, you, you may not be surprised to know, pretty much the Greek equivalent of Baal. Um, now, Dionysus gets to add a little bit more of the debauchery aspect, um, which I'm sure the Greeks had a lot of fun with. But the main thing is that there was a system of hope built into a religion around what we do with our bodies. So to just take a second and, and, and rewind back with me. It's, we're not the 21st century. We haven't been through um, a sexual revolution or the Victorian uh, sexual repression. None of these things have happened yet. Um, we actually don't even know all that much about heaven or have a hope set on that sort of thing. The religion that you have been handed down by your parents is that if you hope to have some meaning in life, that is going to be granted through your children, through the extent to which you live on through your descendants. This is, this is kind of the value structure that they have here. Um, and which again, you know, like we're, we're talking specifically about Thessalonica, but keep in mind, 
this has been constant through Israel's history. This is why the Canaanites would worship Baal. It all has to do with control. It has to do with fear. Right? You would go to these temples and you would worship these gods because there was no hope for a relationship with a living God that could give meaning in your present. These were religions of anti-faith. These were religions of trying to seize a moment because there was no hope. Faith and hope are integrally related. And so, for the Thessalonians, who have left this frame, but it's right behind them. Right? They were raised in this notion that if you want to have a meaningful life, it's going to be through these avenues of reproducing, of having descendants, and of having these connections, right? Like the whole experience gets deified because why? Because fulfilling your desires is a huge part of it. Now, I, the, the Greek word for desire here is, I think, really informative and, uh, and is probably more convicting than any of us are comfortable with because it doesn't just have to do with your, uh, with your sex drive. It has to do with that which is on your chest, that which pushes you, which stirs your impulses. So it's not just going to the temple of Dionysus, but it's how good are you with um, your Amazon Prime? Do you see something, you want it, and you push by now? Do you put it in a shopping cart? Do you wave? Do you say? Do you wait? Do you save? We live in a world of instant gratification. The temple of Dionysus and the temple of Baal may have crumbled over there, but they are looking great in Silicon Valley. We're not, we're not outside of this danger any more than the Thessalonians. But for Paul, he wants to remind them that faith is, some, is, a, is a gift of the Holy Spirit and that part of the way that we cultivate faith is by not giving in to our desires. There is a discipline involved. If you want your faith to grow, you can take tangible steps, even if, you know, you know like in Lent. Sometimes we cut out a good thing just to remind ourselves that we can press into God and trust in Him for purpose and meaning and joy instead of whatever else we might be trying to fill that hole with. So there's the faith portion. We've gotten, we've gotten through it. We're all still okay. But now we come to love. And here, we have a positive note. These aren't the Corinthians it's not a bunch of people kind of puffing out their chests and, and uh, feeling self-important. He says, actually, you Thessalonians have done an amazing job at loving. You guys have left 
your communities and have actually just become a separate community in yourself and you're taking care of one another in a remarkable way. He says, he says you've been taught by God how to do this. I mean, and, and it's, uh, it's one word in the Greek. He, he, you've been divinely taught how to do this. Like, it's, it's, a, it's high praise. They have been loving well. And yet they don't, it's, they don't come out scot-free, right? There is, a, there is a little advice for how can we grow in love. And part of this has to do with you know, what, what Stephen brought up a few weeks ago. It seems like some of them were like, wow, Jesus is coming back. I'm going to quit my day job. We're going to go out to the country house. Everybody come with me. We're going to sit around and wait until Jesus comes back. And Paul says, look, if you want to grow in love, it's great that you've set up a community. It's great that you value each other and that you serve one another. But don't get confused. Part of love is work. Part of love is work. Right? If you want to be ready for Jesus when he comes back, let him find you out in your field working hard so that you can be providing for those who are unable to provide for themselves. Let him come back and find you grateful to have an opportunity to serve. Not, not just borrowing, you know, you're not just on, sitting on the, on the retirement. And there's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with retirement. Don't, don't get mad at me now. He says, what you do with your time, what you do with your body matters. Having nice feelings for one another is one thing, but it has to go deeper. If you aren't stirred to use whatever gifts God has given you to provide for this world, you are not being a good steward of it, right? We are meant to be to, to rule over this world as viceroys of the kingdom. And that's work. It's good work. It reframes how we think about work. I don't work to get paid so that I can relax. I work because this is how I serve my Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how I build his kingdom by devoting myself to a task and growing in it so that others can benefit from it. I do not have this mindset all the time. I might not be the only one in the room. But work is worship. It should be worship. It's a broken world. That's not always easy. But work should be worship. This is us putting to use the gifts that God has given us. He says, you want to grow in love? That's how you do it. And guess what? The people who look and see you doing that are going to think you are so freaking weird that you're working so hard and you're grateful to do it and you see it as the Lord helping you and empowering you to do it. That's how we win others to Christ, by, by them seeing how hard of workers we are and the gratitude with which we do it. Again, 
I am not saying that all of you will love your jobs and that the Spirit is going to convict you if you don't love your job. This is a broken world. People have bad bosses. Sometimes it's just tough. But, but is not God with you in that suffering? Is, is there not some way that you can invite the Spirit in to show you appropriately how to give yourself to that task, whether it's really hard or really fun on any given day, and say, Lord, you know I'm doing this for you. And you know that I want to grow closer to you as I do it. Please, please help me. I think there are mercies there. And finally, we move to the last section. And here, we find the nugget of what Paul might have felt the need to really write this letter about. Seems like faith, they're doing okay. They've left this community. You know, the temptation is still out there, but they've left the community of all the Dionysus cults and whatnot. They've, they've sequestered themselves. They're doing great at loving one another. But hope has taken a hit here in Thessalonica. Hope has taken a hit. Why? Because members of the community are dying. Members of the community are dying, and the rest of them don't understand. They had hoped that Jesus would come back. And right, keep in mind, these are, these are baby disciples. They haven't had a ton of time to, to work out the theology, right? Like, they didn't have a, a real positive notion of heaven, right? It was called Hades. The, you know, they were going to, like, swim around with the God of the dead for a while. It was a negative place for most people, unless you're Achilles, and then you just, you know, get to sit in really nice fields forever. But they're concerned that their brothers and sisters that are perishing before Jesus returns are not going to get to be a part of the eternal blessings. As you look over these verses, I want you to try to sense Paul's tone. I feel like there's a real shift in his tone here. He's, he's no longer the articulate professor. He's not the um, stodgy theologian, King Calvin and his iron pen, correcting a doctrine, frustrated with their misunderstanding. No. He puts all that aside and he speaks to them very gently. This, this is Pastor Paul here. And he says to them, family, I'm not telling you not to mourn. I'm not telling you not to mourn when, you, when sorrow has come. Right? Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb. But I am telling you that we can't mourn as if there was no hope. This, your, your old beliefs, 
where, where we pass away and there's nothing after. That's, that's not what we believe here. We believe that our God died. And that was death's worst day. Because on the day that God died, he killed death. And he is going to raise us up with him. And he gets so excited in this, in describing to them the victory of Jesus that he goes on to bring up all of these apocalyptic images. He's pulling in Daniel 7, I think it's uh, Zephaniah 9, with, the, with not only are we going to be raised up from the dead, but when the Son of Man is coming on the clouds with perfect authority from the ancient of days to execute justice on the earth, guess what? He's going to pull us up and make us a part of that authority to separate us from all of the pain and the fear of our time here. He's going to lift us out of that. And guess what? The ones who have fallen asleep, they're going to get to go first. You're going to see them there. Don't worry about them. They are there. They're going to make it. Paul is reminding them that there is so much more glory than we can see. And what's in front of you in this world is not always going to match up with the hope that we know that we have. We're going to get distracted. There will be time to mourn, but we don't mourn with no hope. We mourn knowing that there is more to come. There is not strength in hell enough to dim our hope. So preparing this sermon, what was on my mind this week is what would Paul write to our church? How would he assess our faith, love, and hope as a congregation? I'd like to think we're not as bad as the Corinthians. I'd like to imagine that. It's a low bar. It's a low bar. Um, But it produced some great poetry. So, you know, maybe that wouldn't be so bad if we weren't. But I decided that I don't have the constructive, critical eye of the apostle. I can't answer the question for you. I'm too close I've been too well-loved here to, to tell you guys, you know, how you're doing on this three-point scale. But the good news is, we can all ask it of ourselves. How is your faith? How is your faith? Do you actually find yourself trusting in God to provide you with fulfillment, or do you try to buy it? Do you self-medicate in any number of ways? Are your actions more often a willful submission to God's glory, or are they 
aimed at scratching some itch for pleasure you need for entertainment. How often are you looking at your phone? How about love? Do you work hard with gratitude for the opportunity to serve God and your neighbor? Would Paul be impressed with your contributions to the well-being of the group? Do you feel like the Spirit is helping you to, uh, to see others through the loving eyes of Jesus? Again, I'm not assuming the negative. I'd be a real Debbie Downer if I was up here assuming the negative. I think that all of you guys are doing well in some of these areas. I want to encourage you. I, I, the Spirit is at work here. You guys know Jesus. The Spirit is gaining victory in your lives. You know, like, I, I, if I, I realize as I'm asking these, if I was hearing these questions, I would just be, you know, really laying it hard on myself, how I'm failing and all of these things. Don't do that. Paul doesn't do that to them. Don't do that. The Spirit's gaining victory in your life. Celebrate that as you think about these questions. But also, you know, but also let, let them hold the mirror up accurately. If you need work, that's okay. It's not just your work. It's the Spirit's. Invite him in. How about hope? Are there issues on your heart so heavy that you can't access any joy from the hope that we know that we have? Is there a trauma in your life that is blocking you from living as if what is to come means more than what has happened? That's not a sin, by the way. That's a reality that we have to face in a fallen world. But if you know that it's true, then you can come to your brothers and sisters in prayer and move through it instead of continuing to push through life without hope. Hope is an important part of how we love well, how we have good faith. Do you need comforting words and a loving embrace more than another five minutes of sermon? There aren't five minutes left. It's okay. Find someone to hug you. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you not only to reflect on these matters, but to share with others in the church how you're doing in these. This is how we win. This is how we become one body and one bride with one mission to bring the kingdom of God here. But before you are either too hard on yourself or too easy, remember that faith, love, and hope are all gifts that were won for us by the perfect faith, love, and hope of Jesus. He will graciously give more through the Spirit if you seek it in prayer alongside your brothers and sisters.
I pray that the lesson that we can take away from the Thessalonians today is that in this real world with real problems, the victory that we can achieve is a together victory. It's a together victory. And if we work as a church to overcome our deficits of hope, of love, or faith, then we can see God's glory coming. And we can make that visible for everyone around us. May the Lord do so more and more as I already see it happening. Amen.